Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of July 2022 and this is episode 262. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian Dr Frances Hurd about her research into officers who fell foul of the law in the 1920s and ended up facing criminal convictions. Frances spoke to me from her home in West Sussex. Francis, welcome back to the podcast. Could you, can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the topic of officers and gentlemen during the 1920s? Yeah, well, it's, it's really nice of you to let me come back again, Tom. Um, I've got a PhD in history and I've worked in publishing and heritage and I'm now doing historical research full time, focusing on Great War topics. I have a long term project exploring the lives of 10 Sandhurst cadets um, on the, the, who attended the first wartime course before, during and after the conflict. But I also have a particular interest in the impact of the war on servicemen of all ranks and their families during the 1920s. And um, while I was poddling around in the British newspaper archive, my attention was caught by the fact that when an ex-officer committed a crime, the headline always mentions that status and that it's always nearly always commented on by magistrates and judges. It was evident that it was felt that officers who had committed a crime had let the side down and they were expected to have higher moral and social standards. Can I start by asking what you think is meant by the term an officer and a gentleman? Right. So I I really wrestled with this because it's one of those phrases you hear a lot. And then actually you start to think when you start to take it apart, you start to think, what does this actually mean? So um, starting from the, the simplest point, obviously, there's an economic factor involved. Someone who calls himself a gentleman documents such as their will or in the census is someone who has the financial means to pay for that status and to show it outwardly. So they'll have a nice house. They can afford to pay for their children to have public school education. Um, And ideally, their income will come from from the land, from land ownership and from rentals. Um, Obviously, certainly by the time of the Great War, this, this was far from always being the case. But that, I think, still remained the ideal. However, beyond that economic reality, Um, there was a strong expectation that um, a gentleman would manifest honourable behaviour, which would justify the fact that they had an elevated social and financial position. Um, And public schools had a major role to play in this. Um, Their curriculum, right the way up to the the generation that went into the Great War, was still focusing primarily on teaching the classics and a very strong emphasis on sport. Both these things feed into the concept of the gentleman. You've got the sort of idea of the heroic classical heroes um, who sacrifice themselves um, and who are always endlessly brave. And of course, you've got playing the game that you are you are going to lead the team. You are going to um, always treat your opponents honorably, this sort of thing. Um, And. The idea was very much inculcated that in war, you would have a chance to prove that you could live up to this code. 
um, 62% of officers in the Boer War were public school educated. And of course, um, they too were volunteers. There was still a very strong belief that the officer should be a man of honor um, during the Great War. Um, and I was fascinated by the publication, A General's Letters to His Son on Being Commissioned, which was published in 1917. It was published anonymously, but it was almost certainly the work of General T.B. Pilcher, though actually written by a general it, um, who clearly believed and felt what he wrote, I think, very strongly. And in the first chapter, he writes to his son, you have adopted a profession which is amongst the highest that a man can enter. If ever you have two courses of action open to you, take that which is the most honourable and which is most thoroughly playing the game for your pals and for your side. I found it fascinating that in 1917, somebody can write this and mean it sincerely. Um, it's a very different concept of um, life in the, um, during the Great War, military life, when we see, you know, we see and hear so much about it just being a sort of ghastly struggle. Um, the temporary gentlemen, so men who were promoted from the ranks to become officers during the war, um, were also expected very much to adopt this code. And I think it's significant that alongside the um, practical training they received in be being an officer, um, they were also given schooling and etiquette and how to behave in the officer's mess. There was very much an idea that if you were going to hold the rank of being an officer, you also had to behave as a gentleman was expected to behave. And you can see, for instance, in Journey's End, you've got Trotter, who's been promoted to become an officer, and his behaviour isn't quite right. However, he does prove, as indeed the temporary gentleman generally did, that they could behave very bravely indeed. Now, you have looked at in detail the lives of three ex-officers. I understand that the first of these came from a particularly privileged background. Yeah, I'm, I must say, I was astonished by this guy. Um, so all my three subjects, I picked them up entirely because in the newspaper articles where they appeared in court, it described them as ex-officer. I didn't choose them on any other basis at all. Um, but Charles Reed Woodhouse, and yes, he was a sort of distant cousin of the famous P.G. Woodhouse, was born at Woolmers Park in Hertfordshire, an incredibly lavish house, which is still standing. Um, and, uh, you know, um, look it up online and you'll see this is a real palace. Um, and he grew up in a household where there was a butler, housekeeper, six indoor servants, gardeners, um, grooms, stables, everything like that. And he, um, he and his brothers came from a family with a long pedigree that, um, again, you can find online, um, centuries of being um, gentlemen. And they all went to Malden College. Um, Charles served in the 7th Bedfordshire's and he was in Gallipoli, where he was not only mentioned in dispatches, but I love this, considering the conditions in Gallipoli, he organised a very successful concert. You're just like, how on earth could you do that in Gallipoli? It shows, I think, that he was um, a very sort of charming person and also somebody who could, could really um, manage to get things done. He's a very good organiser. Um, he was promoted, um, became lieutenant, and then um, when they were evacuated and, uh, to Alexandria, um, to Egypt, um, he then became um, aide-de-camp to General Englefield in Egypt, and finally he served on the Western Front at Ypres. Um, he developed severe rheumatism from Gallipoli, 
Um, and, and then subsequently, when he was in France, he was in hospital for a year with an anal fissure, which sounds absolutely terrible. He had to lie on his front all the time. And he did have um, a, a war pension um, because he was left, you know, obviously some long term health issues from this. Like many others, um, Charles's father found it impossible to keep his estate going with the collapse of agricultural prices and the increases in taxation. He went bankrupt in the 1920s. Uh, Walmers Park was sold to the Earl of Strathmore. I love this. Um, because the Earl of Strathmore was looking for a quiet country house for his daughter, um, the Duchess of York, who was, of course, um, the wife to um, the future uh, king and mother to our present queen. You can see this is a very, very fantastic level of society we're talking about. But Charles and his brothers are now essentially, they, the, the golden story is over and they've all got to earn their own living. And Charles does just that. In 1924, he appeared in court on a number of charges, including passing dud checks, impersonation, staying in fashionable hotels and restaurants under a false name and not paying the bill. And in particular, persuading a really astonishingly large number of women to give him money. Um, I think he did this very much in the way that um, you now get some men doing this online, that they will do what's called the romance con. Um, he evidently was an extremely charming person. And uh, he, uh, he was found guilty on all these charges. And then it, it, um, his lawyer announced that he was in fact mentally ill and was going to have to go into um, an, a hospital for treatment. And that, that's it, nothing ever happened. He never went to prison. And um, the following year he was out of prison and getting married. So I don't, uh, but he was out of the asylum and um, getting married. So I don't quite know what happened there. In 1933, he was charged with illegal pawning, um, which means that um, you're either pawning something that you don't own um, or else you don't, um, you know, you don't actually, you, you know, you're really trying to, to con the pawnbroker. Um, and 1942, firstly, he bought a very expensive stolen pearl necklace from the thief which makes me wonder if he was actually um, known as a fence. And secondly, he was running a brothel. Um, in all cases, although he appeared in court, he never, it never actually seems to lead to anything. He never goes to prison and he was only fined on the last charge. I, I just baffled. He seems to have been really quite successful in his life of crime. Um, and I do think that he probably got away with a great many other crimes that he, he didn't end up in court with. Um, rather surprisingly, um, by the 1950s, Charles had become a bank clerk, um, which is a bit like um, poacher turned gamekeeper, isn't it? And he died aged 81. And I do feel the qualities which had made him a, a good aide-de-camp. So in that is, you know, quick thinking, being very charming, getting on with people. Um, all these things would be great if you were going to be a con man. Of course, he also would have had the public school act accent and the sort of terrific self-confidence of having been born into um, the very, very uppermost echelons of society. Now, your next case is a rather sad one. Alan Dunbar-Lewis. Tell us about him. Yes. So this is a very different life. Um, so Alan Dunbar-Lewis served with the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment. He was born in 1898 and educated at Christ's Hospital. He joined up on immediately on leaving school, age 16, lying about his age, and went out to France in February 1971. 
Um, and the um, regimental history shows that um, seventh KORLR saw incredible amount of fighting between April 1917 until March 1918. And Alan um, seems to have performed very well all the way through this very tough year and was awarded the Military Cross. On the 21st of March 1918, of course, that was the day the Germans launched their spring offensive and um, a gas shell landed in the trench by Alan's feet um, and then exploded before he could, you know, get away or even put his gas mask on. He was very severely gassed and, and was unconscious for a long time. And he was also wounded in the face by shrapnel from the shell. And he didn't rejoin his battalion until a year later. He was on sick leave all that time. By this time, of course, the war was over and the battalion was in Dublin. Um, and immediately on arriving, he was made mess secretary, which I gather was something that was quite likely to happen if he were the latest arrival, because it was a bit of an onerous job. Um, three weeks later, he was given two checks to pay into the mess account. One was somebody's mess bill, and the other one was a mess collection for the Royal National Institute for the Blind. And he paid them into his own account. And not surprisingly, this was almost immediately discovered Alan immediately apologised and repaid the money, but this was seen as really terribly ungentlemanly behaviour. And he was court-martialed. He lost his commission, all his medals, including his military cross and his pension for injury. Um, his former commanding officer appealed, that um, wrote to the, um, the war office appealing and saying that um, could he please have his... Uh, pension for injury restored and described him as an admirable officer with a heart of gold but this was in vain. Alan emigrated to Canada and joined the um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police and um, he was very very quickly promoted to become a sergeant and instructor because they must have thought well this is great we've got a, a young officer who's done well um, but um, um, tragically in December 1921 so only a year after he'd arrived he was dismissed um, for immoral conduct, which is probably something sexual, and returned to England. For the next five years, Alan drifted around England, committing a series of petty crimes from Dover to Blackpool. In 1927, he was in prison for the first time for stealing a bike, and in 1929, again, for involvement in a burglary. He died in Strangeways Prison, Manchester, in October 1930, aged 31. And this is the first time I've ever investigated somebody where I actually found I was reading their autopsy report, which is quite creepy. Um, and he was found to be suffering very severely from tuberculosis. So why do you think Alan's life took a downward spiral in the way that it did? Well, it's interesting. He also came from a very wealthy upper middle class family. But his father, um, Oscar, walked out on the family um, on his wife and son when Alan was only four. And although um, his, he had um, agreed to pay maintenance, he never, ever did. And um, neither Alan or his mother ever knew for the rest of um, their lives where his father was. Um, his mother survived by working as a lady's companion, which basically meant you got board and lodging, but very little actual money beside that. So money would always be very short. And every time her contract ended, she, she was traveling around the country from house to house. And obviously, until she managed to get him taken by Christ's hospital, she would have had Alan with her and he would have had insecurity. He would have been looked down on by the children of the house. And all the time, there would be this terrible anxiety about money. 
he clearly struggled even at school. Uh, when he left um, Christ's Hospital at 16, um, the school pointed out to me that he was still in a class of 13 year olds. And this would be because he had failed to do well in the end of term exams at the end, end of year exams. So for three years, he was had been stuck in the same class, which suggests that he really was struggling academically. Then he gets into the army and like a lot of rootless boys um, throughout the history, he uh, he finds security, I think, and he was being successful. He's doing well in combat um, and he wins a medal um, and obviously good opinions. But, you know, he's seriously injured um, and all that fighting, I feel it would have taken a mental toll on him. I do wonder whether the theft is possibly a symptom of PTSD or just his deep insecurity about money, but it's a tragic story. Who is your third and final subject? Well, this is this is the darkest story. So Frederick Rothwell Holt, who was always known as Eric, served with the loyal North Lancashires. So he was born in 1888 in Holcombe Berry um, in Lancashire. And his grandfather was definitely a gentleman and had income for rents. Then something happened. I haven't been quite able to work out what it was. But his father was working as a surveyor and living in a you know, perfectly ordinary circumstances in Lytham St. Anne's. Um, Eric did, did attend um, a small lo- local private school. But when he left, um, he the only job he could get was um, selling insurance on commission. And he clearly was not successful at that. I don't think he was at all a people person. Um, His main interest in life was the territorials. In 1908, he joined the Duke of Lancaster's own yeomanry, a mounted regiment, which is socially very elite. And he joined as a trooper, not as an officer. And in 1910, um, a new uh, um, territorial group was formed, which was the uh, uh, first and fourth loyal North Lancashire's. Um, and I think he, he found them more congenial. And this was to be the unit that he served with in the war. And I found the that battalion history online, which is absolutely, it's absolutely gripping reading because it's just so honest about um, how they felt about all sorts of things. And what they say about that how, what it says about how the um, members of the unit felt before the war was, those who served in the territorial battalion prior to the war did so in the face of a certain amount of ridicule and were seriously out of pocket over the whole business. So, you know, I feel it's a little bit like somebody being obsessed with scouts or something. Um, he, you know, he, he certainly saw himself um, as being a military type and put a lot of effort into it but he doesn't seem to have had much of a life apart from that. So um, the battalion left for France in April 1915 after a very short period of training. They were very raw troops um, and they found themselves in the front line on the 25th of May. It's very clear from the Italian history that this was a huge shock to all of them. The trenches were nowhere more than two foot deep. The rest of the cover was above ground. Dozens of bodies lay about as they had fallen. The stench was awful. They were under the duckboards, the communication trench or blue bottle alley. Crowds of loathsome insects buzzed around our heads. So they were in the front line for six days. And of course, it was also heavy rain. Um, there was deep mud. It was very unpleasant. Um, and then they came out, went as the usual pattern, of course. They came out, they were in billets for a week. Um, and then they were back. They'd been back in the front line for two days. And on the 10th of June, um, Eric was sent to hospital with rheumatism. 
um, which was a pre-existing condition he'd had before the war. And of course, he should have declared this when he joined up, but he didn't. Um, and that's it. He never returned to France again. Now, only five days later, on the 15th to 16th of June, the battalion took part in the Battle of Givenchy, and they suffered 431 casualties. Um, Eric wasn't there. He was in hospital, and from hospital, he was sent to England on the 24th of June. I'm just stressing this because it comes up again rather importantly a little later. Now, on February 1916, he was discharged on medical grounds um, because of the rheumatism. Um, but the um, doctor who was examining him um, wrote in his medical board report that um, he felt there was a strong um, neurasthenic element um, to this. In other words, he felt, and he said, this is a nervy sort suffering from depression and lack of confidence. Um, I think that Eric found the reality of war absolutely terrifying and that, it, that this, they certainly felt that he was just not suited to being able to cope um, with real military conditions. Anyway, so September 1916, Eric went out to Malaya to be a rubber planter, and this didn't work out. And the reason why it didn't work out was he had failed to get a contract with the company before going. And you can't just turn up and say, I'd like to be employed uh, if, you, if, you know, if you hadn't done that, been interviewed and taken on beforehand. Um, he really was, you know, a, a very sort of, I think he was a fantasist, really. And then I was amazed to find him in August 1917 in Seattle. He's, he tried to join the American army, but was rejected immediately by them. So he now returns to Lytham and he's just unemployed. In fact, the main thing he did um, was take the tram from Lytham to Blackpool. And um, all the conductors knew him very well because... He, he used to make a fuss about paying the fare. He would only pay a penny, which took you half the way, and you were meant to pay two. And he would always say, oh, oh I got on half the way along. I think he thought it was funny, but the conductors found him very irritating. Anyway, in December 1918, he met a girl in Blackpool, and this was Harriet Elsie Fish, who had now renamed herself as Kathleen Brakes. And she had spent the war essentially as what we might call an escort girl, she had um, been living a very comfortable life and making a great deal of money, um, meeting a lot of young officers in hotels and restaurants all around the north of England and making a great deal of money. Um, during 1919, Eric paid Kathleen a total of £345. And that doesn't sound much, but in fact, it translates to about £15,000 now. So he was getting, you know, he, they, she was providing something he wanted. He persuaded Kathleen to take out an insurance policy and to make a will in his favour. And on December the 23rd, 1919, Kathleen um, came over to Blackpool and um, then took the, the tram to Lytham. And uh, it seems very clear that this was because she was um, expecting to meet Eric. The next day, Christmas Eve, she was found dead near Lytham. And Eric's revolver and bloodstained gloves were found close by. So unsurprisingly, he was arrested the same day. He was defended in court by the very famous um, barrister, Sir Edward Marshall Hall. And he claimed that Eric was insane, partly hereditary, and partly um, he, he described him as having gone through the hell of war 
and mentioned the high casualty rate um, that the battalion had suffered. And I do wonder what they, you know, his former um, fellow officers had thought about this because they would have known perfectly well that he wasn't actually there. Um, anyway, Marshall Hall's efforts were unsuccessful. Eric was found guilty and hanged at Strangeways Prison on the 4th of April, 1920, aged 32. So can you put these three men in context? Do you think turning to crime was exceptional amongst ex-officers? So I began with what contemporaries expected of an officer, um, that they would behave like gentlemen. And the vast majority did live up to this. It's worth remembering that the highest death rate of any any, um, rank in the war was of junior officers, 18.5% as against 11% for other ranks, um, because, of course, they were enduring the same risks as um, other ranks, but junior officers were leading from the front. Um, And 37,500 officers perished in the war, 22,000 of them before September 1917, the majority of whom were public school subalterns. Um, But... The overwhelming majority of temporary gentlemen, as I mentioned before, also proved to be good officers and were eventually accepted as equals. Some performed outstandingly well, such as Captain David Nelson, who won the Victoria Cross. So I do think that if you think that the code of being a gentleman and showing bravery and leadership means anything, and obviously one can argue much more much more greater complications about morale and all sorts of other things. I, I do think one has to really respect and admire just how, how brave and how enduring um, these junior officers were. But after the war, the 1920s saw widespread unemployment, which affected thousands of ex-servicemen, officers as well as other ranks. In 1920, Earl Haig's Officers Association appealed for £5 million to help 25,000 unemployed officers. It is a common sight in London to see ex-officers with barrel organs refusing to earn a living as beggars. And I found um, a a really uh, moving poem by Gilbert Frankau, who himself had been an officer. And this is just a little bit of it. Only an officer, only a chap, wounded and gassed in a bit of a scrap. Only a fellow who didn't shirk, shaky and maimed and unfit for work. Asking only enough in life to keep a home for himself and his wife. And she'll work if she can. But of course, there's the kid. Thus men pay for the deeds men did. And I'm sure that Frankau would have agreed that um, clearly this poem would have applied just as well to um, ordinary servicemen. But it just shows the point is that it's not just other ranks. There were thousands of officers who felt that because of the the extra risks they'd taken, that they, they were entitled to something, um, and they weren't getting it. Many um, pawned their medals, um, and they certainly, you can, you do find so many advertisements in contemporary newspapers where you've got ex-officers saying, we'll take anything, we'll do gardening, we'll do garage work, anything accepted. And they always say they're ex-officers because they, they obviously feel that that's a point worth mentioning. Um, very, very few of them turn to crime, A lot of them, when I was doing my uh, Google search through uh, the British newspaper archive for ex-officer in court, what I found was there's a very small number of names which come up again and again. It's, you know, it's certainly not widespread. And this is partly, of course, why these cases attracted so much contemporary attention, because they were exceptional. 
Being an officer and gentleman was therefore not just about education or the right accent, but about personality and a sense of honour. And as I've said, it certainly wasn't confined to actual public school boys. Um, and keeping that sense of honour after the war, you know, it's something that my three didn't do. But if you look at Charles's, Reed Woodhouse's uh, brothers, so they'd all had the same upbringing in this very incredibly luxurious palatial house in Hertfordshire. Um, and like him, they're now all out in the street. They've now got no money, no prospects. They've all had the same education. Um, got, they've been officers. Now what do they do? So um, one of them became a, a stockman working on a cattle station in Australia. Another one was a motor mechanic in Kent. Um, Sydney Woodhouse, who would have inherited um, Woolmers Park if all had gone well for the family, became a kennel man in Worcestershire. And the fourth brother became a sugar broker in America. So socially, they're definitely, none of them are any longer gentlemen, but they're all earning a living honestly, unlike their brother Charles and the other two cases discussed in this talk. Poverty may be the reason these three men turn to crime, but it's no excuse. Um, you can, I mean, it, I can say that I do think Alan Dunbar-Lewis may have suffered from trauma. And I think that uh, um, Eric Holt, um, would have had difficulty in life with or without the war. But even so, that's no excuse for turning to crime. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your research? Um, so I'm on the Western Front Association list of speakers uh, with my three great war talks. But if you'd like to see my full range of historical talks, then go to speakernet.co.uk or publicspeakerscorner.co.uk. Francis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.